Hi, welcome to Your Cron, short for Your Chronicles. I'm your host, Scott Pitney. Your Cron is a podcast where we chronicle ordinary people in their extraordinary stories. We refer to ordinary people on this show as people who are non-celebrities. Our goal is simple, keep our audience entertained and occasionally perhaps even inspire, motivate, or educate while our guests build their audio legacy via this unique opportunity. So let's get right to our next extraordinary story. We'd like to welcome our next guest, Cliff Halfen. Cliff went to the University of Houston Hotel and Restaurant Management School from 1970 to 1974. From 1973 to 1990, he either started, owned, and or operated a variety of restaurants including Mason Jar, Spoons, Fries, Pappies, and the Hofbrau Steaks in Dallas. In 1990, he started Well Seasoned Inc. and was founder, president, and CEO of his own company, which included saltgrass steakhouses and Babbins Seafood Restaurants. That was from 1990 to 2002. And from 2002 to present, he has been a restaurant consultant and investor in a very popular local restaurant here in Katy Loopy Tortillas, one of my favorite places. Cliff, welcome to your Cron. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be here. Yes, and a little background on on Cliff and I. We've been good friends for, I don't know, 10 years now, something like that. Oh, at least. At least, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, 10 plus. But uh, uh, point being, we uh, are usually chatting up about sports or we both went to U of H so uh, University of Houston comes up a lot or just whatever but uh, business has been few and far between which is uh, is okay but uh, I have really been looking forward to this because uh, I'm, I'm looking uh, or, or looking forward to to the gaps being filled in of what I know of your story so uh, thank you very much for being here so the first question that I like to ask is where is a good place to start your extraordinary restaurant story? Well, Scott, uh, probably in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, born and raised in Houston, Texas. I mean, there's not too many people that can say that. Uh, proud to proud to have have that happen. Uh, and Houston uh, having a great, a uh, lot of fun with the Houston sports teams. Big fans of all the teams. So times are good right now. Um, I guess as I was growing up, uh, one of the things that's always been in my mind is, is and looking, reflecting back, how I got this in this direction of the restaurant business. My father, who is the uh, still alive and kicking at 95 years old, wow! Back when I was 16 years old, I was starting my summer, and he comes up to me, he says, "Cliff, can you decide what you're going to do with your future?" And you're like, oh, future? What? I'm, I'm worried about tomorrow. <laughs> I'm 16, Dad. Yeah. He says, and by the way, you're not going to have any activities until you give me some answers. I don't know where he came up with that, but I, I huffed and puffed about it for a couple of days. Then finally, after about a week, I just sat down and started giving some thought. And it dawned on me that it's very simple. I want to be self-employed, and I want to retire when I'm 50. I mean, because I saw my grandfather retire at 50, and he had a, he had a, a long life after that, enjoyed his, his remaining years. I thought that would be excellent to be able to do that. But to be able to do both of those, you have to get into a career that will kickstart and make it happen. Now, I didn't know at the time what career that was going to be, but I knew just from knowing that, and I'm telling my father this, he says, Man, that's pretty worldly. I'm good with that. <laughs> so, so he left me off the hook. Um, so at that point, uh, uh, coming into my college years, and my parents both went to the University of Houston. Uh, they were football season ticket holders forever and uh, involved in a lot of campus activities. My father was originally a chairman of the Frontier Fiesta, so we were always involved with that. And uh, so it just became natural for, for me to go to the University of Houston. So one of my first jobs in the well, it was my first job in the restaurant business, was in 1970, uh, the year I was started at the University of Houston. 
I started working for Steak and Ale restaurant, which at the time there was not there wasn't too many of them. They just pretty much started their you know, their chain, and but it was on the Gulf Freeway freeway over there by by campus, and um, I was a waiter, bartender, and and uh, I was in the business school at U of H, and, and I started looking at these uh, restaurant managers and. And by the way, these restaurant steak and ale restaurant managers became big time restaurateurs over the years. In fact, you, your pedigree in the eighties and nineties is that you had to start a steak and ale pretty much. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a requirement. <laughs> so, but anyway, I started seeing these guys, and God, you're all young guys, cocky, making good money, enjoying your work. And I'm talking to guys I know in the business field, like going to the bank, banks and so forth, and these guys are already got gray hair in their 20s. <laughs> That's it. So it's it kind of like a no-brainer. And at the time, the uh, uh, a new college had just come on campus at the University of Houston, the uh, hotel restaurant management school. So I switched my majors and uh, became an HRM student and worked at Steak and L and then also joined Simic High Fraternity, which I, I was an officer and a rush chairman which gave me a lot of uh, a lot of background on different temperaments, talents, convictions by people coming together as one group, which is really good. That's what you get in the restaurant business. Mm -hmm. And um, so anyway, did the, did that for um, a couple of years. There was a new restaurant that came open on the west side of town and uh, on I-10. It was called Mason Jar Restaurant. It hadn't opened yet. And my, one of my roommates at the time went out there and applied for a job as a waiter, got hired, came back to me and says, Cliff, you just got to go out to see this place and go out there and try to get a job. I was going, no way, I'm not driving all the way out there, you know, for this one restaurant. Are you kidding me? I got a great job here at Steak and Ale. So anyway, I, he talks me into it, so I'll go out there and he, I get hired and they open up and that place is just mopped from day one. I mean, people wrapped around the building from the time it opened until the time it closed at night. And... Um, Shortly thereafter, it was too much for the original general manager, and he quit. And they looked at me. Well, you're a hotel restaurant guy. You work at Steak and Ale. Are <laughs> used to? <laughs> you're the general manager. I'm going like, holy what? 19 years old, still a student in college. Was that leap? So I said, yeah. So by a leap of faith, yeah. uh, I said, okay, I got this. <laughs> and. And fortunately, uh, I had a, the owner was very forgiving. <laughs> and it was kind of like, a, you know, education under fire. Learn by your mistakes and all that kind of good stuff. But, uh, you know, yeah. the restaurant was so popular, it wasn't a problem. Just, so, as a bartender, uh, how many hours were you working average on a week uh, and going to school? And I'm... You're a full-time student, I assume, so. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, before I became general manager? Yes. Yeah. Hey, I, I'd stake it out. I'd stake it out. I was, I was probably working, you know, probably three or four shifts a week. Yeah. Um, you know, it's strictly part-time based around my school schedule. But that quickly changed when I became the general manager of the restaurant. Yeah, because I, I don't think uh, part-time is going to cut it as a GM, right? No, so. no. You're working around the clock. <laughs> you squeeze in some time for school and fraternity. And sleep was not an option. There was no sleep. <laughs> so, but you know, when you're young, you can do that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now we require lots of sleep. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, so now you're general manager of Mason Jar. And uh, what? Uh, where are you in college? What year are you in college at this point? Well, I'm 19. I'm going into my junior year. Wow, okay. And, uh, but, you know, it... It wasn't a problem, you know, just keep on going. And like I said, you just you manage your time properly and it works. And one of my key things, that I'll, my key notes to, at the end or whenever we get to it is my recommendations to all students is to work as much as you can when you're young, get into the field that you want to be in for your career early mm -hmm. to kickstart everything off. Because mm -hmm. then you can finish early. <laughs> and that was kind of the way I looked at it. <laughs> right. it, it shortcuts are very rare, so yeah. why not start early so you can, as you said, enjoy mm -hmm. it on the back end more. And you got the stamina and the no family and, and you know a lot of different things are that can yeah. keep you going. Now, as a as a nineteen year old manager, um, how are you viewed by the people you were managing coming in? Because that's that's a young age. So. Well, Scott. Uh, the funny thing is, a lot of the waiters and waitresses and bartenders and 
cooks were actually my age or, you know, younger. Because they were all college students. They were dental students. They were, they were going to U of H, Rice, whatever. I mean, it, it, was a good, it was a good looking staff of people that were in college. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of in, the, in the, the midst of it. And a lot of the guys, I had a lot of fraternity brothers working there too. Mm. But, you know, we went through a few uh, conversations uh, mm -hmm. at the beginning and they realized that, uh, you know, what it is is what it is. And so they became helpful. You know, they, it became a branch of everybody helping each other out because they knew the, the pressure I was under. So it was but, good. Was there a little resistance uh, at first uh, because you were the same age? You were pretty much on the same level. The only difference is you were in the hotel and restaurant business school. Right. So that certainly gives you an advantage. Uh, well, and that's the thing. These guys, uh, they knew the direction I was going in my career. Mm. That was not their direction. Mm -hmm. You know, they had other career opportunities that they were pursuing, but they, it's, the restaurant business is a great job for college students because you make a lot of money for minimal, minimal time spent. You can work your own schedule, and it just it's perfect for college age. Yeah. So they knew that uh, this is gonna be my, my thing and not theirs, so yeah. they were good. <laughs> well, great, so um, what, what happened from that point then? You're well, we went on for uh, some years, and uh, you know, Mason Jarvis is a great success story. Um, but I started getting anxious to do something else. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and so my owner, I, I talked to him, I said, well, look, let's, let's do another concept. He says, sure, what do you want to do? And uh, I said, well, I thought about it. I said, there's a, there's a new concept that has just opened up in Dallas called Chili's. And they had just opened up, uh, or get, they were getting ready to open up on um, Richmond here in Houston, their second location, mm, you know, wow. Chili's. <laughs> and I said, let's do something better than Chili's. Let's put a more entree-oriented menu together. Because back then, Chili's just had burgers, fries, margaritas, and you know a few other things, chips and dips. Chili. And chili. <laughs> yeah. So I said, let's take that and let's just do it better, have, have a more dinner-oriented menu than they have. So um, he says, uh, oh, and by the way, another side story about Chili's. Sure. When Chili's opened up Richmond, there was a good friend of mine who's, who was in hotel restaurant school with me. And he was the general manager of another fantastic restaurant here in Houston called The Great Mining Company. And he quit his job as general manager of that restaurant and went to work for Chili's when they opened up Richmond and got into their management. So he calls me up and he says, Cliff, you got to come over and check out this hamburger place. It's fantastic. You, you just, it'll make, you'll, you'll love it. You, you need to move over here. And I go, Doug. You on drugs? Yeah, I, I've got. I'm running the busiest restaurant in the city. You know. I, you know why? Why is it? <laughs> and he says, "Well, he says, all right, you just wait and see." So anyway, this is Doug Doug Brooks. Um, now Chili's they go up and they expand na uh, nationwide and worldwide and so forth. Norma Breaker comes and hands them up. They become Breaker International, and they've got all kind of other restaurant concepts out of their umbrella and so forth. So it's a big company public company yeah. and Doug he ends up being the the uh, president CEO and chairman of the board of Brinker International <laughs> <laughs> and, and every, now, every now and then I'll see him he said how'd that work out for you <laughs> well pretty well but maybe as far as relatively as your deal yeah, with Doug, yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> well you know that's your thing Doug don't worry about it <laughs> incredible but anyway, um, so anyway, uh, I talked my owner into doing this uh, new concept. And, and what I was going to add on is um, chicken tenders, uh, nachos, taco salad, chili con queso, all these things chili didn't have at the time. Mm. And the big thing was baby back ribs. Mm. Of which, Chili's comes around and copies me several years later, and that becomes a big staple of their, their concept. You know, baby, baby, you know, their slogan is baby back ribs. Sure, sure. <laughs> Even used in a movie. Yeah. But anyway, what goes around comes around. Yeah. Um, but in putting this concept together, an interesting story with that was that uh, that Chili's, I'd go over there and putting my ideas and resources, trying to figure it all out, I'd go out there at, uh, at nighttime and, and search through their dumpster. Now, there's a lot to be learned by doing that, besides getting filthy. But uh, you could find suppliers, product they're using, 
uh, different ingredients they, that they put together for a product, and just a lot of information. So that was that was one that was my one one of my research tools. <laughs> and, and so dumpster diving is boring. dumpster diving is good. <laughs> now I wouldn't recommend it today. You probably get shot, but back then it was okay. <laughs> But duly anyway, noted, duly noted. Uh, so anyway, that uh, that restaurant's name was Spoons, and uh, it was located on the corner of Gesture and I ten, and was uh, was a home run for day one. Mm. Now, several years later, the rich my boss, the original owner of Mason Jar and Spoons, he uh, he had to sell the restaurant, so he sold Mason Jar to uh, to one group and Spoons to another group. Spoons went on to be a national concept, and it has since died out, but it was it was pretty strong for a good while. And that was in the early 80s. So I thought uh, when he sold those restaurants, this would be my opportunity to go out and do my own restaurant. Okay, it was time. You know, I was, you know, getting on up here in age, probably about 25 or 26. <laughs> <laughs> Starting to see the light of the age. I'll tell you. Uh, but uh, anyway, I put to, I found an investor uh, to do, I didn't need much money. It was an inline space at a shopping center on Westheimer, you know, I was just going to do a, a, a bigger and better spoons with more entree items on the menu. But anyway, I got some money from him and then I had to go raise the rest of the money through a, through a bank. And so I went to probably every bank on the west side of Houston, got turned down, and uh, basically because my my age, uh, but I had a pretty good track record and, and resume. But I, went, I finally ran across this one biker who just happened to be right down the street from where the restaurant was going to be, and he believed in me. He knew knew what what I'd done and so forth, and he loaned me the money. And he's almost my, he was almost my last stop. <laughs> how, how many do you recall? How many banks you went through to, up to that point? Oh, probably twenty or more. Wow. And uh, you know, back then, you know, banks weren't loaning too much money, particularly young guys like me. So anyway, this this one guy believed in me. His name is Maurice Potts, and to this day, I thank him <laughs> for doing that. I mean, it's unbelievable. Well, he probably thanks you too. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, he definitely does. <laughs> but uh, no, it, it was reciprocal. Can, can you uh, can you talk about that process a little bit? Because there's entrepreneurs, people always looking for ways to financially start up a company. Uh, now I know it's a different time, but uh, what? Uh, Going through 20 banks, I'm assuming that every time you went to one, you got turned down, you learned a little bit more, maybe approached the next bank a little bit differently. With, but what was your strategy in, in approaching a bank for a loan? Well, I wasn't really looking for an SBA loan. I don't think they had SBA loans back then, but uh, I was just looking for a personal finance loan. Mm. And so just like... How, how, how much were we talking about? It was only like uh, $70,000. Okay. It wasn't much. But back then, that's a lot of money. Sure, yeah. You know, and um, 1990, right? Uh, the early 80s. Oh, this is oh, okay. Early 80s, yeah. Right. Um, but it's just you know, you just fill out the loan application that they have, the standard application, and you got your resume, and, and uh, you sit down and talk to the banker and try to talk it into it. It's just like any other loan application that you go through, mm -hmm. anything fancy. But I did learn something for each guy I talked to, and uh. I don't know if it helped, but it, uh, by, at the end result, it worked. Mm. But I'm just fortunate that this guy had actually seen me in action and believed in what I was doing and what I was going to do. Yeah. So he was, he was uh, enchanted with it. Yeah. So, yeah. so I don't know, to give you, you know, an idea of, to tell these guys, what, now it's an SBA loan and you just go through all the hoops for that. And yeah. That's, that's about it. Yeah. A lot of lot of paperwork. A lot of paperwork. A lot of paperwork. Yeah. Yep. yeah. It also helps to have money to get money. <laughs> well, that's the, my other issue. I had no money. <laughs> so I was young, dumb, and broke. <laughs> so uh, just um, a quick note for the young restaurant entrepreneur today: uh, Would you recommend that same route, or would you recommend private investor? Pull them together an investment group for somebody. With well, them. I think it's all of the above. Now, as we go through the yeah. through the deal here, we're gonna yeah. find, you're gonna find that uh, you know a lot of the things I did was through limited partnerships. Okay. Where you put together, a, you're the general and they're the limited, and they put together the money that you need to open the restaurant. Mm -hmm. They're limited in kind of, any kind of liability, but they're also limited in any say so in the restaurants. Mm -hmm. But I give these guys a premium. They get uh, upwards of ninety percent of the of the uh, cash flow. Mm -hmm. until they're paid back and then they reduce down to a lesser amount of ownership. Okay. 
And as long as you keep these guys paid up within two years, three years, they're good. You'll have you'll find some money. But those first limited partnerships are usually made up of your family, <laughs> friends, uh, you know, guys on the street, you know, what? <laughs> Someone that believes in you. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So that's really how I raised the the bigger money for the for the restaurants going forward. Mm. So anyway, uh, got that done. Spoons became open or, or opened up rather, and uh, ran into another group of guys that opened a place called Pappy's on Katy Freeway, Pappy's Grill, and uh, got into partnerships with them and uh, ran uh, fries and Pappy's for a while, and then. We got crosswise or in partnership, so I ended up selling my interest out there. And then it was kind of a kind of a black hole for a little bit, about seven months. I had two young kids and no job, no income. And uh, man, I was coming up with concepts right and left in my own mind and on paper, talking to people with proposals constantly and praying a lot. But always positive, never gave up. And uh, then one day the, the mason jar came up for sale. The people that had bought that from my previous owner uh, had let it run down, and so it became uh, affordable. So I got a group of guys, we put together the money in a limited partnership, like I mentioned before, and we bought the Mesa Jar and you know, just put it all back to where it was. Uh, great food, great service, fun atmosphere, and the people came flocking back. And it was, it was all good. So it was... Uh, from that point, uh, there's a restaurant in Dallas called Hofbrau Steaks. They're pretty much the same thing. It was in the Highland Park area, big restaurant, over 300 seats. And it was a, a, a very successful place for a number of years, and then the management let it run down, became available at a cheap price, got in there, turned it around, and became big-time business. You know, just, it only took about two months to do it. So uh, those, those two... You said you brought the mason jar back to where it was and turning the hawk route around. Can you talk about that little that thought process some about when you're walking into a restaurant, what are the key, uh, as we call them in business now, KPIs, key performance indicators, what are some of the key things that you look at in a restaurant? Okay, all this stuff needs to be fixed. What's the, where's the number one place you generally start on, on that priority list? The people. You gotta get the people believing in what they're doing and believe in you mm-hmm. that you're gonna make it happen. If they, and as soon as they start thinking that, it's amazing what they will do. Mm-hmm. You know, their face lights up, they're greeting the customer, they're treating people with respect. They don't have the give a shit attitude that, that you see a lot of times in restaurants. Mm-hmm. And you tell them to do stuff and they do it because they believe in you. Because they need to make, they need to make money too. They're, 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 you know, they're spending their time there. They just, they've got to be able to earn a paycheck. And they love doing that if they had the proper tools to deal with. And so that's what you do. I mean, you just, you make sure your food quality is good. You make sure your atmospherics are good, your lighting's good, your, uh, but the main thing, you gotta make sure your people are good. And your people, in the long run, is what makes it happen for you. I, have ne- I would have never, and I'll, I'll probably repeat this over and over again, but I would have never gotten to where I am today without great people. I think that can be echoed for a lot of businesses. Oh, of course. Yeah. 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 So the Hofbrau, turning yeah. that around, and then, then what happened? So, the so we have the, uh, so, uh, so now we've got, uh, we've got the Maester back performing well. We've got the Hofbrau performing well. And uh, there's a restaurant uh, that had been several different concepts, almost directly next door to the uh, Maester on Katy Freeway in Houston. And it was vacant. And so I talked the landlord into doing a, an appropriate lease for it and I was gonna put a concept in there to just, I'm just gonna go in there and remodel it and do some kind of combination, make sure you're opera and so forth to, and get it open. So I raised uh, $500,000 through the limited partnership aspect and um, again, through your parents, your family, your friends, your, you know, whoever you find. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just enough money to go in and remodel the place and, and uh, Put new equipment in and, and reconcepted it. So what happens? Then day one, the guy uh, we're under construction. The guy on the, is on the roof with a blowtorch fixing the roof. A shingle catches on fire. The fire catches the building. The flames in the building are, are six stories high, and the place burns down to the ground. 
just absolutely still and everything right down to the ground. Mm. And the strange thing was there's a place called Carter's Company right next door that sells ammunition and guns. And unfortunately, the fire didn't creep over to them because it would have been oh <laughs> unreal. Goodness. But anyway, the place burns down. I'm sitting there, oh my gosh, how are we going to pay back these people? You know, people that we know and they trust you with your money and so forth. And, but the fortunate thing is that the, the roofer had good insurance. So we got another 500000 on top of that from the insurance. So now I've got a million bucks to, re, to build the building the way I want it, put the concept that I want in there, and there you go. But, uh, it was like a godsend. And so I needed to come up with a name of the Salt Rest Trail Ride, which is the original trail ride that goes into, that starts off the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo every year, comes down right in front of the restaurant as they're heading toward the downtown area uh, for that occasion. And uh, so I thought, what a better name than Salt Rest Steakhouse, you know, in honor of that. And then I, I got to know the people of the Salt Rest Trail and uh, there's a lady that uh, I met that was the daughter of one of the original founders of the Salt Rest Trail Ride, Maldine Marks. Mm. And Maldine had a Longhorn Ranch in Barker, Texas, uh, just right before you get to Katy. And she had uh, every form of pictures, memorabilia, stories, newspaper articles that you can imagine about the trail ride. Hmm. So that went into all the restaurants as the thing. Mm. Perfect. Just because we came up with this name, that just fell right in our laps. So mm -hmm. it, it was perfect. So anyway, Sawgrass, we, uh, what, what year are we in now? Though? Well, that's, that's, that's why I had to pause because, you know, you go through this thing. You, you started the corporation, um, started Sawgrass, I believe, in 1990, so. Yes. It must be around that time period. Yeah, it's, a. Uh, the first five Sawgrasses were in Houston, and then, um, one of the best things we ever did was we need to distinguish ourselves from the uh, chain restaurants as we expanded. Mm. And to, by doing that, you have to do, you have to be a step and above the, on the food level. Mm. So we thought, well, let's go and um, make our own breads, make our own desserts, make our own dressings, butters. Just, there's, there's nothing that's not made in-house. Everything's made from scratch. Mm. Even have little bakeries in every restaurant. And that really sets apart from most restaurant chains. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing that was good was that uh, in the early stages, we established our core values and guiding principles. And that uh, with that, we brought uh, key members of all aspects of the restaurants in, set them in the ring for two days, and just asked them what they thought the restaurant should represent to the people looking from the outside in. And so, you know, I kicked around a lot of ideas. You know, some were, were thrown away, some were kept, but the ones that were kept had to be agreed upon as a unanimous decision by everybody there. So we came up with these principles and guidelines, and that became gospel. You now, once you start expanding, it's very difficult to keep everybody lockstep with what you're doing because you're hiring more and more people. You start losing your culture if you don't have these guidelines. And so if there was ever a problem or anything that we wondered, how do we handle this problem? All we had to do was go to our, our principles and guidelines and, so, and it gave you the answer. And so every employee that we ever hired from day one, after we established those, had to memorize those and understand them. In fact, you know, one of the tests was you know, going up and you know, give me those core values right now. <laughs> yeah. Sure, sure. But you know, that, it got to be where they could say, oh, that's not core value number three. They could spot it across the dining room, you know, type thing. So it was good. Really instilling it. How many core values did you have? There... there was a, there was a 11 core value, no, eight core values and 11 guiding principles. And they needed to memorize each one. Mm -hmm. yeah. And understand what they meant. Yeah. Which are is the, important. Are these, uh, did you come up with them yourself or did you have any guidance uh, oh no it was not me it was the people that were in that room yeah they looked at it in terms of how they thought saltgrass could be represented to the to the public and what they believed in 
And I trust these people because they're original employees and they understood what we were all about. So we just need to put it in written form so that we could transcend this culture into the future. And how long did that process take? Well, establishing these core values and guiding principles, two days. And it's it's you know it's 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 kind of a tough process, but it's a good pro. I mean, you feel good about when you're done, and, right. and everybody felt good about walking out of that room. Right. Yeah, I uh, was developing a unique selling proposition for my company, and I'm you know I've been doing this, started this company over 18 years ago. That should be pretty easy. It mm -hmm. turned out to be a 90-day process. Yeah. To to really sit and think is write something down and it changes or you think of something else or some way of saying it better but uh, well that's why I get it done at the start is, is, is the best way because it's all fresh in everybody's mind it's, it's the original people that are, that are putting these ideas on the wall yeah and get, get, get a good facilitator to make it happen you know we, we hired this outside facilitator to, to do it he's, and he's skilled at doing that right. and so he pulls information out of people in various ways yeah. and, uh, and he makes people feel good about their ideas and keeps them open and, and flowing. Were there any changes, revisions, amendments to the to those uh, no. principles? So Amazingly like enough, that was it. That's a, that is incredible. Yeah, and we have little pocket size uh, cards that have that the information on there. You stick in your wallet. Yeah, we hand them out to customers. We do it, whatever. With yeah. it. I mean, it was, everybody's very proud of. Yeah, very cool. Mm -hmm. Very cool. But anyway, that's a. Uh, the, so I guess the next subject, uh, so we had the five original restaurants in Houston, and so we needed to uh, be able to get capital quicker. So I, need to get, I needed to have an institutional type investor to fund future growth, because the next restaurant, the sixth restaurant, was gonna be in Dallas. And, um, and then I knew we'd probably duplicate them uh, quite a few in a, in a short amount of time. So we started talking to people about that, and there's a company called Metro National, who is a, um, uh, a family-owned company in West Houston. They own the Morrill City Mall, Morrill City Hospital System, uh, tons of office buildings, hotels, land, all in that Morrill City area. And they just so happened that they brought down the freeway from the original Sawgrass. So they were fans of the, of the restaurant. So they came on board, and uh, they agreed to finance construction and property acquisitions for, for eternity, you know, until we sold it, mm. which they did. And, uh, boy, that was a big hole. <laughs> they just said, they said, build them as fast as you can. So once you, once you get those orders, yeah. it becomes a little bit easier in the sense that now you can build your team and um, from the home office on down and really start generating um, not only you know, management type people. We were hiring people that were already employed. We weren't hiring the unemployed type. People would come to us because they knew we were on a growth, uh, a growth uh, pattern. And when you, when you turn the table and you're able to do that, it becomes so much easier. Um, because they could see that, that they came with us, with our growth, their careers were gonna expedite as such, which they did, the good people. Yeah. So, um, First restaurant in Dallas was on the north side of Dallas in Louisville, and a little concerned about you know people in Dallas. They didn't know the Saltgrass brand. They didn't know anything about us. We're just going to open up this Texas steakhouse, you know, in Louisville, Texas. Well, we opened that place up, and I mean day one, packed. Mm -hmm. I mean you could not stir with a stick. <laughs> The second restaurant was in Grapevine, Texas, which is right between Dallas-Fort Worth, next to the um, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. And Grapevine, Grapevine's unique because they've got, uh, it's kind of a crossroads of a lot of different major freeways right there. Mm. And that became the number one sawgrass, and still is today probably. But it was a home run from, from day one as well, but even more so. And so that just expedited things even further. <laughs> so everybody uh, is pretty familiar with location, locate, location, location mm -hmm. in the restaurant business. Uh, can you talk about that for a minute, Dal? Yes. Important that is, and how much research goes into that? It is critical. We 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 believe that you needed to be on a freeway, 
not if you go to an interior location, even though it may be good today, that the dynamics of that location will change over the years. And you're you're you know signing to 25 year leases and so forth. You know you, you need it to last a while. So a freeway location, even though maybe the area changes, you're on the freeway with visibility. It's like a giant billboard, and people can get to you. That is critical. I mean, it's worth the extra money. Um, so all the restaurants were on a freeway. We'd always go to uh, newer areas that didn't have, that were, we could see that the demographics were there that we needed. Um, the freeways were good, but the restaurants hadn't started populating yet because no one had tried it out. So we were usually one of the first ones to get there. And of course, everybody would see the business and they flocked there immediately. But you know, I think we held our own with all those concepts. But that's, uh, I would say to answer your question, Try to go to new areas on the freeway. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the suburbs. In the suburbs. The freeway in the suburbs. Yeah. Um, and just uh, for listeners outside of the Texas area, because if you're in Texas and you don't know Saltgrass Steakhouse, you're living under a rock. But uh, how many Saltgrass Steakhouses exist today? Well, Scott, I don't know. I was trying to figure that out the other day. But I, when I sold it, when we sold it to uh, Landry's, who, who bought it, they, uh, there was 25 saltgrasses and three Babbitt seafood, which we'll get into in a minute. Mm -hmm. But I would imagine there's probably close to 100 saltgrass steakhouses, uh, and they put them in their casinos, their uh, entertainment areas, uh, just wherever. They'll, they'll just drop the saltgrass down. Don't think twice about it. <laughs> I've got a son of mine lives in Odessa, Texas, and it's you know Odessa, Texas is in the middle of the, the plains, and it's just nothing but oil wells. Mm. They are between there's Midland and Odessa, and they opened up two saltgrasses, and they are packed every day. <laughs> I'm like, where are these people coming from? <laughs> anyway, they got the minus touch with it, but it's a good concept. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, on another subject as okay so we're expanding saltgrass we're going going along and then um, we had an opportunity with a restaurant called Dennis's Seafood located on West Town here in Houston it, it was owned by um, a good friend of mine Dennis Wilson who's a, a Cajun from Lafayette Louisiana just a great Cajun cook chef type type guy just fantastic food anyway he had his restaurant he, he's also a former uh, owner-operator of the original Landry's in Katy and, and uh, Don Seafood in the Post Oak area. And uh, he got bought out by Tillman Fertitta, who now owns Landry's back then. But anyway, he had his own place called Dennis's Seafood, and he was, he was uh, sort of undercapitalized, needed some debt to be paid back. So we went in there, uh, took his debt away, shut the restaurant down for about 10 days, remodeled it make, to make it look more like a seafood restaurant. And then it, uh, once they've opened the doors back up and people flocked in there like crazy. Still had Dennis's great food, but now the trappings were better and it drew people in. And it worked out great. So from there, we thought, well, this is an expansion opportunity. But I felt like we needed to, to uh, have it look more like a uh, Louisiana, New Orleans type look. Um, and give it a, that type of name too. So I took our management team that, you know, we picked out a location, took our management team to the French Quarter in New Orleans, <clears throat> along with Dennis and our architects and so forth. And, you know, we're, in there, we're down there for about four or five days trying to get the culture down and, the, you know, the way things need to look and, and feel. And uh, so we pretty much got that. And, and that's what Babbins is, is a, is a accumulation of all the different looks that you see in the French Quarter, not only from the outside, but the inside as well. So every, every little hallway you go down, it's something that you've seen in the French court mm. and all put together and, uh, and along with uh, having great seafood. Uh, had captains uh, busting that stuff in every morning, fresh, fresh fish. Uh, we'd always have about 18 to 20 species of fish. We were, when we ran out, scratched it off the blackboard and just kept on going. People loved it. Mostly from the Gulf? All from the Gulf. All from the Gulf. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, we had the captain out of Lake Jack. Well, two captains out of Lake Jackson that would go out and bring uh, hauling fish every morning. They rolled in about six o'clock, and we we'd inspect it and immediately flay it down, get it on sanitary ice, and serve it. 
these captains were solely dedicated to your restaurants bringing seafood? Well, mostly because we bought a lot of seafood. Now, they would sell whatever they had left to other seafood restaurants, but they would come to us first. We get our uh, what we wanted, and then they go on from there. And what, what is it? Can you talk about the inspection process of seafood a little bit? What it, what well, we required him to, when he, when he caught the fish, uh, to put it on sanitary flaked ice mm -hmm. immediately. And then um, we brought it in. Our, our managers were trained to look at the scales, the eyes, the the texture of the fish, and that would tell you, you know, when it was caught, um, you know, how fresh it is, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then you either reject it or keep it, and what have you. <clears throat> and then we had a group of guys, uh, our cooks, we go in and immediately flay everything down, re-ice it, and uh, have it ready to go for lunch and dinner. So that's about it. But you, if you don't do that, they will try to slip by, slip you something that you don't want. Yeah. Uh, so we, everybody has to be aware of what you're working with. Right. But it's pretty neat seeing those giant fish come in. I mean, these are huge fish with big eyes. And, you know, I never will forget the first time I saw a red anaga, which is a very deep water fish. His eyes are the deeper the and the deeper the water, the bigger the eyes get. Mm. And these things, man, they look like goggles. <laughs> But probably the best fish you've ever had in your life. Yeah. Red and Naga. <laughs> what, what is the um, timetable for all this to happen? So the fish are generally caught. You talk about it, they have it all filleted ready for lunch. Can you kind of backtrack from there when the fish are caught and when the Yeah, they, they, the captains go out. You know, as you know, it probably takes about, uh, you know, I don't know how long to get to the fishing grounds. Probably about eight or nine hours to get out to the fishing grounds. Mm -hmm. They go out the, the previous morning. They fish all day. They come in. They put it loaded on the trucks, and they're at our door probably about five o'clock in the morning. So it's less than twenty four hours. Wow! And that's when they start filleting it. Is five mm -hmm. in the morning? It's, yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's incredible. Yeah. So it's almost like if you want any fresh, you catch it yourself type thing. <laughs> <laughs> and eat it on the boat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's incredible. Um. Well, let's see. Let me think about it. We plugged in some camp. I already told you about that to Dennis's and got it up and running. Okay, so we got uh, so we got Babbins. Uh, oh, by the oh, good story about the Babbins name. Um, we were in, when we were in the French Quarter, New Orleans. We spent all that time there. We we were all scratching our heads about what type of uh, Louisiana type name we could give it. So we we're getting ready to leave. We're standing next to a phone booth. And I noticed a phone book there. So I started thumbing through the pages, and the most prevalent name that I could see was Babbins. So here you go, boys. Babbin Seafood. <laughs> That's your Louisiana name, right? Okay, let's go. <laughs> A little bit less time than uh, salt grass, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah coming up well, that. you know, sometimes it's not rocket science. You just have to make it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's worked well. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, we, uh, we ended up doing, a, you know, Landry's had been looking at us for about two or three years, and you know, Metro at that point had the option to be able to sell if they wanted to because they had basically supplied all the financial aspects of the restaurants and our expansion growth. So they had that option. And at the time, uh, Landry's came, came to them and made them a really good offer and they accepted. So uh, it sold, um, I think, in 2002. And um, so Landry's ended up buying 25 saltgrass steakhouses and three Babbins seafood restaurants. But more than that, they got a great team of people from the management on down. I mean, that's something they really um, had a lot of value to, to it, along with the profitability. So anyway, the, that's what happened with those restaurants. And since then, um, I'm an investor in a fantastic Tex-Mex restaurant that I spend way too much time at. <laughs> <laughs> From the customer end of it. Um, and we've been fortunate to spend a lot of that time with you there. Yeah, called Loopy Tortillas on the Grand Parkway. It's owned by a good friend of mine, Stan Holt, and I've uh, just been serving as a consultant on uh, numerous restaurants in Houston over, over, the, over these years. But this, the best thing that this is allowing me, I had a daughter um, about a year after the restaurant sold, and she's a you know, great athlete, and she's involved with a lot of activities, so it's allowed me to spend time with her and, and do a lot of stuff with her. Her name is Summer, Summer Grace Halifin, 
and I named her because she came the summer of my life by the grace of God. Fantastic. Could have been more blessed. But that's the story. Now, I've got a couple of uh, other things, Scott, that if you'd like to go through them, some keys to success. Absolutely. Uh, before we get to that, I, I want to um, backtrack on a, on a couple things, um, particularly the, the sale of the restaurant, and you, you uh, shared some of that, but um, maybe just I'm curious about a few more of the details of that, of that process. You mentioned that one of the key things that they look at are the people. And yes. how specifically do they go about uh, deciding or, or looking at the people that are involved in, in making that a success? Well, we went through a period of time it's called due diligence, okay. which is a very tough time because here you are, you know, they come in and they've got a letter of intent, and it, it gives them the right to come in and look, to do, look at every aspect of your business, mm -hmm. not only from the financial point of view, but get into the restaurants, talk to the people, um, just, just get in there and live it mm -hmm. for a period of time. So here you are trying to operate a successful restaurant chain. And at the time, the, the employees weren't real keen on landers coming in and buying them out. They liked things just the way they were. Sure. So there was always a lot of conflict with that. And so they spent nine months looking at that. Mm. Seemed like nine years, but it was nine months. <laughs> but you can't blame it. It's, it's a lot of money. Mm. And uh, they, they, by, the, by, by the end of the day, they thoroughly know pretty much all the employees, what they can and cannot do. And, everything about your financial picture and, and the whole bit. They know exactly what to expect, and that's when it closes. This is the uh, Landry's organization we're talking about, and you mentioned Tillman Fertitta earlier. Uh, obviously one of the biggest celebrities in the restaurant business, and of course, current owner of the Houston Rockets. Did he own Landry's at the time of the sale? The sale? Yeah. So uh, what was that like working with Tillman for nine months? Well, it was interesting. I, you know, I, I really can't go into a lot of the stories, but you know, I just admire him for what he does. I mean, he's a, you know, he took his company public and then he took it private. And to be able to do that, that kind of a swing and have that many different, and what he does, he goes and buys concept that, 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 that are already up and running. They're showing good profitability and have good management and so forth. And he buys them and takes them over and adds that to the portfolio. and. He's done that with so many concepts, I can't even count them. I mean, he's got restaurants over the country that he's done that with. So that's their forte. And uh, he's just a, you know, strong businessman. Now, he used to do a lot of stuff himself back in the day, but now I'm sure he's, he can't do it anymore. He's, it's all diversified out to various departments, which I can't blame him. But um, he's, he's good. He knows what he's done. So, uh, yes, we were going to talk about some of the keys to being a successful restaurant entrepreneur. and uh... Yeah, uh, Scott, I'm just thinking of, uh, and these are all top of mind type, type things that uh, I just put down, put, broke down this afternoon that I thought people might uh, like to hear. Wonderful, yeah. And, and most of them are just common sense type stuff. But uh, I think I mentioned this before, start working in your field early, even though even through college or earlier for a fast track. So if, like I said, if you want to, if you want to end early, start early. Mm -hmm. Don't wait around. I see some people, they don't start their field until they're 26, 27 years old. Well, man, you're going to be working the rest of your life. <laughs> and, that, and that is a, a real interesting uh, notion because a lot of people, including myself, wasn't really sure what my niche was in life. Yes. Uh, so what, what do you say to, to those kids that uh, are still trying to find out what it is that they want Well, to do? what I say to that is to is go ahead and lock into something, even though you're not sure. Try it out. If it doesn't work, try something else. But don't sit on the sidelines. You gotta be in the game. If you're not in the game, you're nowhere. And being in the game, you specifically mean working. Get employed working. <laughs> you hear that, kids? <laughs> yeah, because it's almost like the generation nowadays, they, they just want it to come to them. Well, that just doesn't work. You know, yeah. maybe it does for some, but most of it doesn't. Most, yeah. Yeah. Correct. All right, next thing is, uh, is to, uh, I mentioned this earlier, be ready to work as much as possible when you're young. 
it'll, it'll enhance your fast track. And you know, when you're young, you have time to work. As you get older, you start having family, you start having other obligations and so forth, it becomes very difficult to spend a lot of time with it. But man, when you're young, you got all the time in the world, so just do it. And working a lot, working hard, that's another thing that I've heard some uh, millennials specifically, um, younger generation, um, you know, working a 40-hour week is a pretty big deal to them. Well, back in our day, uh, back in our that's, day yes. that's a part-time job, right? If I was good, I had one day a week off. <laughs> but uh, no, it, 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 but the thing that will make it easier for you if you find something to do that you have a passion for. You know, find something that's halfway interesting or it's halfway fun. I mean, it's very difficult to spend a lot of time with something that's not, uh, that you don't have any interest in. Right. So whatever it is, like it. Yeah. Um, another big thing, set goals throughout your career. You know, if, if you don't have a goal for the, for the end game, you'll never get there. You just absolutely won't. So as my dad told me, you know, figure out what you're going to do. I said, well, my game is to, you know, retire when I'm 50, which I did. Landers, I mean, uh, Landers came to Ball Sawgrass in Babbins when, when I was 50 years old. And that is, that's incredible. And you set that goal at 16, 16 years old. So... There's so many books and things written about goal setting. One of them is uh, it should be it should have a date. What's yours had a date, and uh, the other thing too is to make it visual. Post it somewhere where you, you oh. see it all the time. Did you Absolutely. do anything along those lines? Oh yeah. Well, I personally did it. To, I did one, five, and ten year, and then the end end goal. I always had that posted in my room that I could see it every day. And I taught my children to do that. I put it on my son's mirror. And he did it throughout college and throughout his career, he still did it. But uh, you can do it very, uh, in various parts of years and what have you, but go and adjust it every year. See what you've done. Give yourself some credit. Um, Reevaluate a few things, but look at it every year for adjustments. But do one, five, 10, and do stuff that's attainable, goals that are attainable, make two columns, one attainable, and one reach for the stars. Mm. So if you reach the, if you get halfway to reach the stars and get the moon, well, that's a pretty good deal. Pretty good miss. But if you don't have that reach the stars goal, well, then you, you're kind of okay with attainable. Mm. So that's two different, two different ways to do it. And, and yours was at 50 to be retired. What was the definition of retirement to you and, and did it change throughout your career? Well, I knew that the only way that that was going to happen was for me to be in control of my destiny, meaning be self-employed, own my own business. And so that's what I try to keep in mind at all times, to, to put myself in that position, no matter through the highs and lows. And then once you get going, um, if the sale had not come through, we would probably go in public at some point. And we were set up business-wise to do that. So... That was my backup plan. If it hadn't sold, and I, I wasn't looking for it to be sold. I, you know, we were a big family of, I mean, we were a big company, but I knew every single employee and we were very close. And believe me, I had to go to every, I didn't have to go, I wanted to go to every restaurant to announce the sale in a, in a team meeting at each restaurant. And it was a very sad, sad state of affairs. You know, like crying and so forth, but you know, something I felt like I needed to do, I just didn't want to walk away. Yeah. And Entrepreneurs a lot of times are told build build the business with the end in mind, with the, the thought of selling the company somewhere down the road. Did that ever come into play uh, when you were building the business to uh, what are investors going to be looking for when I go to sell this one day? Well, you look at uh, uh, multiples of sales, you know, you've you know, you got to reach, you know, it, you know, what I always strove for is try to get to up to $100 million in sales because then that becomes something that mm -hmm. big companies would want to look at to buy. Mm -hmm. And we actually sold it a little bit higher price than that. But, uh, and then also, you, you know, have a certain profitability. I mean, we, we were, you know, we were around 18% to 18 to 19% profitability on the, on the restaurants, which is very good in the, in the industry. 
So make yourself look good. Uh, you know, make 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 it something that you people would want to buy. Mm -hmm. Because if you get something that's just struggling along and they're expanding, you know, they look at it like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> well, yeah, anybody can go to the stock market and make five or six percent. Yeah. So you know, most venture capitalists, thirteen, it seems to be, is the the baseline number to start at. Right. And it goes up from there. You have to have a good ROI, return on investment, and you have to have. Uh, you know, these guys that crunch numbers, you know, they, they look at all that stuff. And so you got to make sure every every uh, number that they look at, that's a good number. Yeah. And we always try to maintain that. And throughout the throughout the life of the restaurants, we, we strove to, to be there. Yeah. All right, so another uh, another thing that, uh, and this will happen in a career, because you have peaks and valleys uh, normally, but never obsess about failure but instead be concerned about how much better it could be. So, you know, it's kind of like people ask me, I said, weren't you worried about failing? And my father used to ask me on that all the time. <laughs> I go, thanks, Dad. But I go, no, I never have really thought about it. I just think how much better it could be. You know, that's, that's, that's what I worry about. So I think once you get in that uh, worry about failure mode, that's when you start having problems. So just a little. Interesting. Something for me. Mm. Next is surround yourself with people that are smarter than you, and I'm sure everybody's heard this many times, and then have different expertise and aspects of the business that you don't have. But that's so important. I mean, you know, you can't be the smartest guy in the room. You gotta have people that are a lot smarter than you doing a lot of different things that you have no clue how to do. <laughs> I'm telling you, there are so many different aspects of the business, it's unreal. Now, back in the day, when you first start out, you're wearing the hat for everybody. Yeah. But as you get bigger, you just don't have time, there's not enough energy and so forth. So you hire people that can do that kind of stuff. Where did you see your expertise? And, and I totally agree. You know, when I started my company, I was the accountant to clean the bathrooms, oh, yeah, yeah. Know, whatever it took. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, as, as things started to settle, well, I always kind of knew where my background, where I was going to be most helpful to the company. But how how did that play out for you? Where did you see yourself years down the road uh, being most helpful to the company? Well, you always have a, a thing that you like to do the best. And, you know, what I always liked was, uh, I was a concept guy, put together concepts, mm -hmm. uh, figure out how to make concepts better, mm -hmm. um, interior design, uh, architectural, site selection, um, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of, I don't know, what's that, right-minded, left-minded type thing? <laughs> Middle-minded, I'm not sure. But that's the kind of thing I was most interested in. The creative side. Creative side, right, mm -hmm. right. And, uh, but you have to have uh, people to do the accounting, the, oh, I like to eat department, it'd be a huge, I mean, it's a big, big deal in the restaurant industry because it controls all your financial information coming in daily. So your IT's got to be up and running constantly. You know, your point of sale machines at the restaurants have to be always working and uh, they have to be somewhat idiot proof so you understand how they work. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, I mean, it just goes on and on, you know, your, your marketing department, uh, accounting's huge, uh, you know, you just can't be an expert in all those fields. All right. So you have to have good people for that. Yeah. And our home office was, it got to be not real big, but fairly big. You know, I think the more employees you had on, the, the bigger it gets. But, you know, one thing I tried to do was have all my general managers of each restaurant feel like they owned the restaurant. Mm. And they did in the form of bonuses and the way they were treated. Mm -hmm. And one of the big things, I never wanted them to call the home office for a question mm. and have them go and put, a, put them on hold or, you know, treat them with disrespect. So that was a big pet peeve of mine. So I put the pictures of the general managers at each restaurant down the halls of our offices and made sure that everybody knew their names and what they looked at looked like mm. and have them, when they, when they called in, Say, how's the family? How's the kids? You know, get to know names and treat them like one of their own. Mm -hmm. And because that can get away from you quick. Mm -hmm. But these guys, I mean, we'd have the, the top 10 stores and the bottom 10 stores. Reports would come out uh, quarterly. Mm -hmm. And you always wanted to be a top 10 guy because everybody would see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely didn't want to be the top bottom 10. No. And those top 10 guys, we'd set them your wives flowers or we'd send them 
gift baskets to the office in the mornings when they got there and uh, various little different things, you know, little things that make them feel good. So, Was it an 80-20 rule that was it typically the same GMs that uh, were performing? Well, you know, it's a, it would change uh, occasionally, but yeah, and but those guys, the cream rises to the top, you know. But, uh, you know, it causes all the guys in the middle and the bottom to try to get work harder. But it's not the top 10 guys, not necessarily the most sales, but the most, a lot of different things. You know, the profitability, the, their food costs, their labor costs, their, uh, their customer retention. Because you can have, you can work on all these costs, but if you're not retaining customers coming in, if they're going away, well, that's a problem. Yeah. So that was a huge part of it. And um, same store sales, which is your sales comparable this year to last year. Um, a variety of different things, but no, it, the top guys and what those top guys end up doing eventually they become area managers, uh, regional managers, and so forth. So there's always an opportunity to advance. But while they were in charge of that restaurant, they felt like they were the owner. Their name would be on the front door, such and such proprietor, mm. and they were the man. Yeah, and we treated. Them. I felt like our home office worked for them. They didn't work for us. Um. And that goes into my next next one here. Treat your people like they are owners of their area of responsibility and that you work for them to help them facilitate what they do. So, I mean, it's just simple as that. Mm-hmm. And it makes life so much easier mm-hmm. when you do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't work from the top down <laughs> type thing. When, when, you, when you hired, uh, especially at the GM level, uh, how much promotion from within was there versus hiring somebody from the outside? Oh, we would always try to promote from within, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you're expanding, I mean, some, we're opening one restaurant a month there for a while. But, uh, so you're, you're constantly bringing these guys up the ranks. And some guy, the Peter Principal, would hit, and they, they, we found out that that's as far as they could go, mm-hmm. just because that's their ability. Mm-hmm. But some guys would excel at that. Uh, you would bring in some guys from outside, and by the way, a lot of the we started hiring some military guys, and those guys were awesome. I mean, the retired military guys are still young; they've got a lot of energy, very disciplined, and those guys were were super managers. Imagine. Next thing is <clears throat> celebrate your employees' achievements. Well. We would go out and look. I'd make, their, I'd make our area managers go out and look for achievements to celebrate. Mm-hmm. And you get that popping, and they start trying to do things to get that celebration. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what were some examples of ways that you'd celebrate? Oh, see, you get some kind of outstanding comment card about uh, a hostess, mm-hmm. what she did to facilitate uh, customers' needs or a waiter or what have you, um, a cook that would go over and above the line of duty and come in extra to work such a such shift when you really needed him to when you're shorthanded. Mm-hmm. Um, just a variety of different things, but mostly service-oriented mm-hmm. type things that the customer sees. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really. Yeah. But you know, you also have, every department's got goals and various different things, and you always celebrate their achieving goals. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it too. Mm-hmm. And probably one of the most important things is keep your family close and treat it as your most important function outside of business with whatever time you have. If your family ain't right, you ain't right. So it's a very time-consuming business, as is most most businesses. You do have extra time in your hands from time to time. Make your kids your hobby. Mm-hmm. You know, don't go off and play golf. Don't go out bar hopping, whatever. Mm-hmm. Your kids are your hobby. Mm-hmm. So. Make that happen. And that's about it. Uh, Outstanding. I, <laughs> there's so many more questions I could ask, but maybe we can do this another time. Uh, that, that was great. I, I, I did want to go back, uh, backtrack just a little bit, um, being a, a U of H guy myself and uh, knowing several people that went to the hotel and restaurant school. And uh, also, I can say that... Uh, what I majored in, I used very little of that <laughs> for what I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about your the, the, the U of H uh, Hotel and Restaurant School a little bit and, and how 
how much it did prepare you for for what you did? Well, we had, uh, you know, back when the schools first started, they had a bunch of, not a bunch, but it was, it was a very small staff. Uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Clint Ripoll, uh, Donald Greenway, um, the dean was Dean Taylor, and, but these guys had a very extensive restaurant hotel background. But they would, in a lot of our management classes and so forth, particularly uh, uh, Donald Greenway, old time hotel guy, he would sit there and tell stories. And you would, you'd be on the edge of your seat enthralled with, with, with his experiences and what he had to tell you. Um, but a lot of our classes were like that. Most of the instructors had that kind of background where they could give you real life situations about, you know, um, the psychology of doing how things work and so forth. We had a lot of psychology classes, a lot of management type classes, a lot of accounting, that sort of thing. But it was uh, it was well worth it. Um, I didn't particularly care for the chemistry part of it. <laughs> I had a teacher that was Korean. I had no clue what she was saying. <laughs> Chemistry classes uh, specifically for restaurant. Well, we had to take uh, one of our requirements was organic chemistry. Mm. Why? I have no idea. But mm -hmm. but you know, uh, and this one teacher taught it every semester. No matter how many times you dropped it, she was always going to be the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Cliff, uh, thank you so much. I, I like to end on this question, which you've already touched on a little bit uh, talking about summer and, and your son as well and uh, but uh, even beyond your kids generations from now great grandkids mm -hmm. may be listening to this podcast in, in some audio form or another um, what do you want them to, to take from this or what, what do you want to tell them well my legacy is uh is that by far the greatest thing that ever happened to me was to have three fantastic kids, um, Jennifer, David, and Summer. Um, and they produced five grandkids so far. <laughs> <laughs> you know, outstanding grandkids. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I could not be blessed with anything better. And uh, I think they will always know how proud and loved they are by me, along with their future generations. So that's one. The second is that Sawgrass and Babbins, which is now owned by a great company, Landry's, uh, will keep them productive for generations to come, and this will allow my future generation to enjoy the legacy that the restaurants provide. Well said, well said. Cliff, thank you so much for being a guest on your farm, and Captain All right, thank you, Scott. Enjoyed it. Hey everybody, Scott here to take another 60 seconds to talk about a sponsor I'm very excited to have to Eurocron, Suburban Buzz. Suburban Buzz takes the sting out of your marketing costs. Get your business buzzing with web development, graphic design, social media, digital marketing, advertising, and publishing services all from Suburban Buzz. Visit SuburbanBuzz.com for more information. Now, the owner, Holly Shervisic, didn't ask me to read this part. I've used Holly's great services for many years. And I gotta say, when you're a small business like me and many of you, you need that excellent service. You need those quick answers and quick responses. That's what you get from Holly. That's what you get from Suburban Buzz. So check them out, suburbanbuzz.com.